You're listening to Wastoids. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. The good news is, therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? Well, it's whatever you need it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated right now and would like some tools to help. Maybe you're feeling insecure in relationships or at work or not dealing well with stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of normal human struggles and start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about. It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. As a special offer to Wastoids listeners, you can get 10% off your first month of professional therapy at BetterHelp.com slash Wastoids. That's BetterHelp.com slash Wastoids. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. Everybody, it's the Spindle Podcast with Mark and John. Hi, and welcome to the Spindle, a podcast about Seven Inch Records. I'm Mark, and I'm John. And in each episode, we talk about one Seven Inch record. Hopefully, give you some insight into it that you haven't heard before. Uh, we both got into music in the '80s and '90s when Seven Inches were super important, especially on independent labels. So that's the era we mostly draw from, but we'll pick some stuff earlier or later than that too. And either way, we'll try to keep it short and to the point, just like Seven Inches do. So since this is our first episode, just a little bit of background. We've both uh, written a bunch about music, researched a lot about music, played in bands. We were actually in a band together in DC called The Plums. Um, when DC area is where we've, both of us have lived most of our lives and John's still there. I'm in Arizona now. And mostly we're just big music fans, and we also know a few things about the history behind some of these records, too. So that's a little heads up about who we are and where we're coming from. And on this first episode, uh, we wanted to talk about Husker Du's 7-inch, 8 Miles High, backed with Masochism World, which came out on SST in uh, the late spring of 1984. So uh, John was actually around when this, I mean, I was around when this record came out, but I, I, didn't, I didn't know Husker Du at the time. But John actually... Uh, bought it when it came out right yes i did i was very excited to i was stoked because they were my favorite band and they covered my favorite song so <laughs> i was cool. like over the moon uh-huh and you um, actually you actually heard it on the radio i did well i was it's a at whfs in dc mm-hmm. which was a bit of a ringer because it's like the only commercial station in the whole country that might have played it mm-hmm. uh and they was i was driving west on 50 and and heard it and was just like what the heck and drove to the store and bought it immediately like just it was just i couldn't couldn't wait uh-huh that's awesome yeah yeah and, and uh i guess for anybody who somehow would not know it i'm sure you probably everybody listening is probably does but it's a cover of a bird song yes and, uh, <laughs> as which and, is, is its own greatness and right. uh, just the birds are one of my favorite bands too so that combo just mm-hmm. it just took me apart that's awesome. Um, so Husker Du, Minnesota band, they they had a couple, I mean, how many records they have out at this point? Probably three albums, two albums. They had out um, 
land speed record, mm-hmm. two singles. I think uh, Metal Circus was the most recent thing that had come out in okay, December yeah. or so of 83, cool. late fall mm-hmm. 83. Mm-hmm. And this was the next thing that came out after that. Cool. Yeah. And I mean, it, later that year, Zen Arcade, the double album, which yeah. became, you know, was one of their most famous records came out. And this was recorded in the same sessions as that, but they decided to release it as a single on its own. As a stay, yeah, just a standalone yeah. single, which is yeah. a great idea. Yeah, and it which, definitely primed the pump for Zen Arcade. The cool thing about it is you can, I mean, it's not a surprise that they recorded at the same time. It 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 sounds like the stuff that was on Zen Arcade, but I think it made a lot of sense not to put it on Zen Arcade. I think it oh, 100%. Would a little bit a little bit odd on an album, and it's and it so works just completely as its own statement. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that they probably always intended it to be kind of its own thing. Like even though mm-hmm. they recorded, because of course SST famously cheap. And they would probably be like, okay, these sessions are for you guys to record a single and your album. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to put the single out first. Hopefully the single, probably some of the idea of the single is to raise enough money to press the freaking record. (laughs) And I mean, it's, you know, right. That's, I think that's probably correct. Right. No, it sounds right. And uh, so then, you know, it's, it's a great idea though. It's, um, it is definitely part of the record, but also its own way kind of separate from it. Mm-hmm. And it's the the record sort of presages the, how psychedelic the, the Zen Arcade is. Mm-hmm. It's like a, a kind of a shot across the mm-hmm. bow of that, letting right. people know that it wasn't going to be the usual hardcore. remember if there was like a would this have been a weird thing to do to cover what at the time i mean the the term classic rock probably didn't even really exist but might people might have still thought of it that way you know this is a classic rock song and a hardcore band is covering it would that have been a weird thing i don't not as much as you would think Mm because i mean like they had already covered uh donovan on everything Uh falls apart they did sunshine superman um people covered stuff all the time kind of sarcastically but kind of not you know, mm-hmm. like the circle jerks did golden shower of hits. And mm-hmm. I mean, I think it just depended on what you were doing. I think everybody that's a the eight miles high is the kind of song that people would, you wouldn't complain about people really covering that. That's not really a sellout song to cover. <laughs> right. You right. know what I mean? It's right. right there right. are songs you could probably cover like that, or, but that would not be one of them. And it, right. it, it fits so well in their aesthetic that mm-hmm. I think that there was just nobody, I can't recall anybody questioning it or thinking it was a sellout move or something. Right. Like yeah, it's a funny thing. I mean, I, I back at back at, in those days, I remember always thinking if a band's covering something, especially a, a punk or underground band covering a famous song, it's it, it they're either making fun of the song or they're trying to be ironic. But this is pretty far from any of that. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 a feral. Those covers absolutely feral. Like it's mm-hmm. it goes even beyond what a lot of hardcore is. Way more intense than a lot mm-hmm. of regular old hardcore would be, just mm-hmm. emotionally and sonically. Mm-hmm. It's whether it's hardcore or not, is they've like gone beyond that. It's some of the 
sound of it is almost kind of industrial in a way. It's sonically definitely more extreme than the bird song, but the kind of tension that the birds were playing around with, not necessarily an homage to that, but it's consistent with it. I think that it was very conscious because Eight Miles High was a very important single for the birds. And uh, they considered it, it was considered to be a very forward thinking, sort of a good vibrations level single at the time, you know, Mm -hmm. to incorporate the, it's, it's, you know, if you haven't, if people listening haven't listened to it for a while, go, go listen to it. It's unbelievable that it got on the charts at all. Mm -hmm. It opens with a free jazz guitar solo. It's got this (laughs) pump and bass. They jam out most of the time, you know, and, and. It's very intense, and it's probably one of the more intense things that would have been played on the radio in 1966, for sure, Mm -hmm. Uh, just sonically and and emotionally and otherwise. in the way that they both approach it is really, really cool because the birds being the birds, their approaches, it's the whole song is about anxiety. You can, you know, people think it's about drugs, but it's really about anxiety. If you listen to the words and they, but they're playing it cool. They're trying to tamp it down. You know, they're like, Uh I don't want to seem anxious. I want to be cool. You know, I'm on a jet, I'm a bird, uh, but I'm freaking out. Whereas Husker Du, it's the anxiety's just let loose and, and becomes this almost like a tantrum-y kind of like overwhelming. I'm just overwhelmed by it. I don't know where to go with it except to scream and, right. you know, break down. It breaks down at the edge of sonically. It breaks down vocally. Mm-hmm. You know, it becomes a kind of its own sort of blur mm-hmm. uh, as it goes on. And and it's the very similar. The birds thing does the same thing, but it's just those, those years of separation and Mm-hmm. Um, who's going to do kind of knowingly taking it on meant that they took it that extra step mm-hmm. further mm-hmm. Uh, beyond what the birds were doing and were able to. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, they've been using this as a live song for a while before they recorded it. In fact, I think it was like an, a, a relatively frequent encore song and uh, the recording ends up having, I mean, it feels sort of almost like a live. I mean, when you listen to the B side, which actually is live, you realize that the, the A side is very much a studio creation, but it's still the energy and the way, especially the way that he kind of goes really off the deep end at the, near the, you know, the last yeah. part of the song is, is very similar to probably what they were doing on stage. There's a lot of remarkable sonic moments in that track that just blow my mind. The guitar playing is, is absolutely off the chain the entire, mm-hmm. entire song. <laughs> Uh-huh. And uh, at the end, it's almost like he has to kind of get the guitar back under control there for a second. Like he hits these three mm-hmm. chords mm-hmm. as the song goes out at the end where it's almost like he's like grabbing the guitar. Okay, let's bring you back in, you know. Right. He sounds like he's jumping up and down mm-hmm. when he's singing it. It's got to mm-hmm. be one of the most intense vocal performances I've ever heard uh-huh. anybody give. Like if you throw right. on headphones and listen to that, you can hear him like huffing and puffing. And he's like obviously just in it, like neck deep. You know, and it's very, I don't know, it's wild to listen to. Like when I was a teenager, I related heavily to it. And now I'm like, oh, you poor thing. 
You know, I want to take him and give him a hug. You know, <laughs> right, <everybody>. right. <laughs> it's going to be okay, Bob. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sure Bob, he feels the same way about it. It would be hard to listen to that. Like, mm. it's such an intense emotional performance, like mm-hmm. that accessing that spot. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know that that's, you don't want to go there. Like, <sighs> as a person, like, it's not necessarily good to, right. to go to those places all uh-huh. the time. Like, you did it, you made a record of it, and it's like, maybe I need to do it. thing to me uh, that I love about that end too is like probably the first time you hear I can't really remember the first time I heard it but I imagine like that the way he sings at the end sounds pretty unhinged almost to the point where it's like oh, this is sort of a primal scream but the listen to it more there's there's music inside of the way he's screaming and it and it actually kind of goes with the guitar that he's playing in, a, in almost like a weirdly rhyming way no it does yeah very much yeah. so but it is very I don't know I mean he's pretty <laughs> <laughs> he, he, you know he's one of those dudes he will just go there and mm-hmm. so if he can get in that i guess if he can get in that performance mode and mm-hmm. and make it i mean like he's it's wild the connection with the birds thing you were talking about covers mm-hmm. i think they meant it as like that bird signal single amos high was supposed to be a big deal like they meant it as like this major statement you know this is right. like they were ahead of the game and everybody's going to have to catch up which was kind of true mm-hmm. and so i think Husker Du was doing, you know, that was, they picked that song and that single deliberately in a way to echo that, you know, mm-hmm. like that's one of the first psychedelic singles, one of the first, you know, and they're like, we're sick of hardcore as it is. We want to break out of that, you know, and I think that was sort of a signal of that, that they could take that intensity of hardcore, but you don't have to sit there and just play hardcore all the time. You can jump beyond that, move into other realms. Mm-hmm. And that single is a very, early precursor because it was that it's funny because it came out like my war came out around that time me puppets Two, all of these within about five or six months of each other that whole scene that had started off with bands like minor threat and stuff like that had like kind of spun or spun apart so you had people who wanted to stay in that what i would call kind of skinheady type of hardcore music mm-hmm. and obviously the people who had gotten originally into that stuff were more eclectic listeners and they got sick of playing the same stuff all the time. Right. right. And that includes almost every one of those major early bands you can think of, whether it's mm-hmm. Kreutzen or Necros or mm-hmm. um, Henry Rollins or Black Flag or Minor Threat or all of those bands did that for like a year and a half. And they're like, well, okay, good. Now what? Most of the really good ones went and did more interesting stuff kind of mm-hmm. after that. I think that the Husker Du thing was like, you know, you don't have to be a meathead about it. The Spindle will be right back after a brief word from our sponsor. From cult horror and sci-fi to B-movie splatterfests, to underground music documentaries, concert films, public access shows, indie label showcases, and original programs, Night Flight Plus is the coolest place online for weird and riveting viewing. Right now, Wastoids listeners can get $10 off an annual membership. That means access to Night Flight's library for only $29.99 a year. Head to www.nightflightplus.com backslash promo code 
and enter WASTOIDS in all caps. That's W-A-S-T-O-I-D-S. Enter promo code WASTOIDS at nightflightplus.com backslash promo code and get back in the days. And now back to the show. It's funny, uh, going, going through those songs for the purpose of talking about them made me realize how much weirder not that the bird song isn't pretty obviously weird for the context of the time and, and for being a pop song, but it's even weirder than I remembered. Like, yeah. especially, especially the guitar playing. I mean, the guitar solo in that is like, it's, it's definitely fucked up. And it, it's like, he's making weirdly deliberate. Mis- I don't know if it's mistakes you would call it, but just everything he's is playing free. Of- he's deliberately playing free jazz. He's right, like, right, he's right. trying to ape Coltrane and he's uh-huh. trying to ape Albert Ayler and that kind of thing. Right. So, um, he that's the sound of it like they uh-huh. were listening to ravi shankar and john coltrane and so mm-hmm. that whole that sounds like coltrane you know it's like leo or something like that so uh, yeah that that's, opens the freaking song that solo <laughs> right. you know what i mean like uh-huh. it's not like uh-huh. they started off with the uh-huh. they start off with the most intense part of the song right and he got radio play at all is insane like uh-huh. anybody who's like, all right, I could have gotten to number one or something. They're out of their minds. Right. Cause there's this weird myth about it having been banned from the radio, but yeah, I mean, it, it made the charts, so it couldn't have been that banned. No. And if it got, I mean, that song getting to number, it was like got probably to t- 10 or 12 or mm-hmm. somewhere there into the top mm-hmm. 15. Uh, that's mm-hmm. just bananas. Like that's, uh-huh. that's gotta be one of the most, like nobody would say the Husker du version was expected to get into the top 20. Right. <laughs> and right. the idea that it, it got there and and it's it's regarded as a classic. Mm-hmm. Like people don't mm-hmm. just sit there and say, Oh, that's the weirdest song that ever happened. Right. Everybody's just like, Oh, eight miles high, it's great. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, yeah. you hardly ever hear anybody say anything bad about it. No, that's true. And the the interesting thing too, the the the, the kind of thing that parallel that I'm sure mold must be thinking about a little bit is so they start with the guitar part that sounds not, nothing like the birds part other than it's got some same notes, but it's got that same kind of, this is, this is what you're going to be hearing on this record right away. Like it doesn't yeah, right. delay. I mean, yeah. he immediately goes into that heavy, harsh guitar. He sound takes the ba- He plays the bass line because he's got to start. Right. Right, right. <laughs> but he doesn't, he's not letting Greg take the, the opening. Whereas Chris Hillman played the opens with the bass that boom, 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 right. Boom, boom, boom. Right. And the Husker Du goes, crank, 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 which is, you're right. Yeah, it's perfect. Uh-huh. It's like, a, yeah. it is, I think, very sort of a knowing echo of the original. So that mold sound, that guitar sound, which, you know, he kind of was always part of, even as they got cleaner sounding and everything, there was always sort of a distinction to his guitar sound. Do you think, do you think he had a, like a specific pedal setup or something that got, or is it just about volume mostly that made his Oh, no, he so? has, I mean, I read somewhere, so the whole thing with him is he uses very light strings and a light mm-hmm. pick and mm-hmm. uh, a lot of volume and a lot of overdrive. Mm-hmm. So anytime I saw them, he was playing through a very powerful, at least one very powerful stack, which would be twin through a Marshall. So like to what they call 100 watt amplifiers, which are huge. And he would have them running, as far as I could tell, flat out, like both the three times I saw them. They were at the time, I, I think they were by far the loudest band I saw uh-huh. um, the uh-huh. couple times I saw them. But there was also, I don't know, as pure decibels, but it's been kind of lost to time how intense and noisy his guitar sound and extreme it was like mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. so much stuff has happened since then that you forget that he right. there was nobody that sounded like that like 
it sounded like you know they chucked cats in a dryer and turned it on and that's like the sound of who's could do live uh-huh. it's really intense and he was i guess trying he's like oh well, i want to combine the hollies and throbbing gristle mm-hmm. and that would be kind wow. of yep it, you yeah. nailed. <laughs> and uh so very very deliberately extreme industrial not in the ministry sense but industrial in the throbbing gristle einstrasende neubotten original you know hitting things with girders industrial right. Right. Um, and uh, just no, I think noise itself, that cathartic, like seeing them was like a physically wrenching thing. I'm not that I'm sure other people would say the same thing. It's like really intense to see them. And that was back before earplugs and anything. Right. So you would come out of a show of theirs, like your whole body would just be vibrating from the volume and intensity. Of right. It. Right. And that's just, sort of another another way, way that, that they connect pretty well to the original is that they, there's a there's a drone to his sound because he, right. he lets it ring out so long. Well, the drone is, is the part of the song. And, and uh, I think some people don't quite hear that, but the Bob Bolton certainly did. Like uh-huh. he focused on the, like he, that was a key part of the, like he obviously focused on that drone mm-hmm. um, in that song. And that's, he built sort of the guitar around mm-hmm. like that guitar, just drones, like you're saying through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of covers cause the birds had two guitars. And so he kind of covers both guitars that way. And the uh, sort of one of the other interesting things that I, when I was reading about this uh, song in a couple of different books, so sort of at the same time in the early eighties was this Paisley, the Paisley underground thing was happening, which is like dream, not, not dream, uh, rain parade and three yeah, dream syndicate. And like, dream dream syndicate. syndicate yeah. 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 Uh, the, the three o'clock. Right. Right. And they, and they were considered sort of more directly an update of what the birds, like psychedelic stuff that birds were doing somewhat. It's just funny because because uh, Grant Hart, the Who's Guru drummer, I don't know if we mentioned his full name yet, but uh, he in that in that Andrew Earls book about Who's Guru, he's like he's he actually asked him about those bands, and he's like those bands that wouldn't add anything to the sound if they had covered this song, it wouldn't have sounded much different from the original. We created an entirely new song out of it, which I think is he's accurate about. But the funny thing is, Mold seemed to think the opposite that that he kind of thought he was they were playing it just like the birds, which I think he's being a little facetious there. But also, I think he did, did sincerely want it to sound the way he heard that bird's song himself. Yeah. Oh well, I mean, I think I think they're both right. Like, yeah. I think that that they played it like the birds, but I think they mean Bob Mold might mean he's playing it like if they were the birds and they <laughs> right. were in the studio, this is what it would be like. You know what I mean? Like if the bird, if the Husker do was the birds and if Husker do wrote a miles high and if Husker do played high miles high, that's kind of the approach. And I don't, I mean, Grant, I think he's kind of right about those bands. They definitely like to, you know, we like a lot of that stuff like Opal and things like that. And, right. but they definitely would be more reverent. I think to that, like you'd hear a 12 string in there and they would probably, it would probably be tamer than the birds original version, mm-hmm. you know, even though I love those bands, but I just right. think it, they would not, none of those bands except for the dream syndicate really would get out there. Right. Like who's would, you yeah, know, yeah. and who's mm-hmm. live. Nobody, they would jam for like 15, 20 minutes at a shot. Like they wow. would just do complete noise, free jams. Mm-hmm. I mean, reoccurring dreams was stuff. They would do that live. I saw them play mm-hmm. who's helter skelter for 10 minutes, you know, they, mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, they, they were, they just took on songs as their own anyway. And I think that's what Bob Mold means in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I could definitely see that, that they, like they're, they're sort of like, what, what if we, pretended we were the birds not so much what if we sounded like the birds yeah well i mean it's like a deeper it's like 
almost like method acting in a way, like it's deeper than that. It's like, you try to look from inside the birds, right. but be yourself, mm-hmm. you know, just accepting that you would sound different anyway. Does that make right. sense? A little meta. Yeah. And uh, speaking of live. So the B side of this is a live song that the studio version ended up coming out on Zen arcade called masochism world. And it's a good song. I mean, and it's a good recording. I mean, it's an interesting recording of it. It sounds good, but it, it seems sort of purposefully not just, competing with the a side at all it's a it's a definite b side yeah and meant to I, i'm sure they you know why would you what would compete with that a side right, right like what would you right. put i mean i suppose you could right. maybe make some insane double a side where uh-huh. you know they put whatever on the beast but i think anything right. else because it's a cover would be swamped I mean, this is something we'll we'll probably talk about as we go along with every episode, but there's different kind of seven inches. And one kind yeah. was, this is a single, a song single, and we've got to put something on the back, but we don't want you to be playing that one on the radio. We want right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you put so, the right. And, and that's yeah. true. Yeah. One-sided singles, basically. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they know nobody's going to play a live version of something. They want to make sure that everybody's playing eight miles high, I think. (laughs) And that's, that's more of a sixties thing in some ways though, I think where you Mm -hmm. have publishers insisting a certain song would have to get played. Right. That would, you get all these like publishing music uh, business games with what song is on the A side and what's on the B side and who's making money on that. I don't think that was happening with SST. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which is, which is funny because, I mean, at that point, that's not such an anomaly, but it won't be too long getting it toward the 90s where the idea of a, of a, of a one song seven inch is not as big a, de- big a thing anymore. I mean, bands are trying to shove as many short songs as they can and make EPs out of seven inches or make them double A sides or whatever. I, I think that that's more the trend later. Than- well, that makes no sense at all. Single has the Mary Tyler Moore theme on the B side. Really right. Kind of right. a double A sided single that you would mm-hmm. just flip back and forth at least I did back in the day, just over and over. So they weren't averse to that. And there was one where you would think if it's a radio airplay, you would definitely want makes no sense at all to be the one that everybody's playing. Right. But instead they made that great single. Right. Well, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, this is such a great record and it's wild because on the one hand, I would say for the time period, it's probably one of the best independent singles you know, maybe of the, of that little stretch of time or even of the decade yet, it's probably not their peak just because they kept going higher and higher for a while there. Uh, yeah. Well, it's, I mean, it's hard to, it's gotta be one of the best. I mean, just at least as far as rock covers go, I think people acknowledge that's one of the best of all time. Like anybody who hears it is just like astonished by it, you know? Right. right. But it's true. You can't play it on the radio. You couldn't play that. It's too much. <laughs> yeah. Like it would just blow out any uh-huh radio station you know mm-hmm. i mean it worked on college radio but 
I can't imagine. Imagine DC 101, you know, they play Puddle of Mud and then burn, 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 burn. <laughs> right. and you're just like, no, it, it would just, it's too, too intense for that yeah. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, they just knocked it out of the park, you know, like just really good material, good performance, great band. Yeah. And just such a, such a rich thing because it's connected to something that they were conscious of. It wasn't just a, a cover. They were, they were, they were thinking about it and, and doing something with it that makes it interesting. Right. Right. It, right. You know? Right. And the, the whole, right. With the birds and the psychedelic thing and the, mm-hmm. the who's, who, you know, yeah, it's, it's crazy. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a, it shows it's thought, like you're saying, well thought out, you know, mm-hmm. you choose the right yep. material and it, yep. it's pretty cool. It's a, it was a great idea. Yeah. I agree. Cool. But thanks everybody for listening. I also want to say thanks, a uh, quick thanks to Honey Radar for giving us our theme song that you heard at the beginning of the episode. And uh, they're a great band out of Philadelphia that's made a lot of great singles. And hopefully one day we'll talk about one of their singles on the on the podcast. But I hope you enjoy that song. And uh, I hope you tune in with us next time. Thanks a lot. The Spindle is produced by John Howard and me, Mark Masters. I'm also the audio editor. Our theme song is by the great band Honey Radar. Our podcast is brought to you by Wasteoids, audio and video from Hello Merch. Find more podcasts and videos at wasteoids.com. And please leave a rating and a review of our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks. Thanks.